Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Hey everyone, welcome back to Searching the Sacred. We are glad to be with you and we are so happy that you're joining us for this special bonus episode during the season of Advent. We are glad. (laughs) Yes, we are. Yes, we are. I'm just going to pick up where I left off. <laughs> Cut this out. Today, we decided to focus on Matthew chapter 2 and the story of the Magi coming to visit the Christ child. And so Lisa's going to read from Matthew chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read from the First Nations Virgin, which is the an indigenous translation of the New Testament. So I'm going to read verses uh, one through six. It was during the days of the bad hearted chief looks brave, which is Herod, that the chosen one was born in the village of House of Bread, Bethlehem, in the land of promise, Judea. After his birth, seekers of wisdom, Magi, traveling on a long journey from the east came to village of peace jerusalem they began to ask around where is the one who has been born to be chief of the tribes of wrestles with creator israel we saw his star where the sun rises and have come to humble ourselves before him and honor him when chief looks braves heard this he and all who lived in the village of peace jerusalem were troubled He called a council of all the head holy men and scroll keepers and asked them where the chosen one was to be born. In the house of bread, Bethlehem, the village of the great chief, much loved one, David, they answered, this is what the prophet said, but you, O house of bread, Bethlehem, in the land of promise, Judea, even though you are small, you have a good reputation with the chiefs who watch over the land. From you will come a great chief will guide my chosen people, the tribes of wrestles with the creator, Israel. I don't think I realized how many like, um, like names were in it until reading it that way. (laughs) I was thinking the exact same thing. I loved how they gave you not just the, the word Jerusalem or Judea or Israel or Herod, but they gave you so much context around that. Like, I love the, like the reading of, you know, the, the, the chief fake brave one or however they put it and (laughs) all the people in the, in the city of peace were afraid. I was like, Oh my gosh, how many times have I skated over the word Jerusalem and never thought like, like that place of peace or the city of peace. And like, that's what it's supposed to be and represent. And here it's immediately being juxtaposed with fear around the Messiah, which 
good that that's that was good writing that was good passages like this are are really interesting to me because they're so familiar and yet yet they are not um like we think of them in the context of our um nativity sets or or that christmas reading but there's so much um first century history in here there's so much context that we don't tend to just sit and talk about so i'm really excited to sit and talk about it today and and unpack and think about like who is king herod who are these magi what's going on at the time period in these places and how does all of that come together um and one of the things that comes to my mind actually is um is actually being in Bethlehem and seeing the Herodium. So Herod was a great um, builder. We will have to unpack a lot more about who Herod was, but he, he like in, uh, it looks like in 40 BCE, I think is um, when he started this, he started building a mountain for himself. Uh, it's called the Herodium. So listeners can look up the Herodium, <laughs> but it's only three miles away from Bethlehem. So, so this conversation about this, like King of the Jews being born in Bethlehem, besides the historical context of like the Hebrew scriptures is also like right near where Herod was building a mountain for himself. Um, and so this sort of picture of like, at the same time, the King is building a mountain dedicated to himself and his power and strength. You have a child being born who is the actual King who is born into poverty, but it's like, really side by side geographically in a way that doesn't seem accidental to me even in the timing and the Herod piece to like just if you lived there and you saw the Herodium and you saw a star would you see the star or would you only see the Herodium like would you would you be able to notice what's going on lifetime I think one of the interesting things I've heard and I don't I'd have to like fact check this so someone else can do that. <laughs> but there's this passage later on where Jesus says like, um, like if you ask, it will be done for you. Even if it's to say to that mountain to be thrown into the sea, you, you know, you can do that. Like you could pray for that. And like part of the picture possibly is that here's Herod and all of his political might and power building this thing. And then here's we little you and your small little prayer. And you could take that whole thing that's been constructed and throw it into the sea because when God is on your side, like that's that's the power that you have. That's what prayer, prayer is can do, or in a way. And and now there's a whole lot to unpack with that. But like the idea here is that Jesus isn't just saying like prayer is really powerful, but there's like there's like a political underlining to all of this, and there's like social inequality underlining all of that, and so there's all of this tension happening, and. And here it is being highlighted what, you know, like right at the beginning of Jesus's life mm-hmm. with where he's born, being connected to the political powers that be. Yeah, that does change that idea of like if in that passage, if Jesus is saying that mountain, what what where he's pointing would make a big difference for how you interpret that. Is he pointing to the Rocky Mountains? Is he pointing to the Herodium mm-hmm. a man-made mountain? built to defend power um which really starts to think about who herod is um so herod um was 
Well, what do we know about Herod? Give us the history lesson, Steph. How far back oh, do you want to go? I'm not good at that. Let's go into the intertestamental period. Woohoo! 400 <laughs> years between Old and New Testament. So, a quick little history for all those who might not understand what's happening with Herod in the first century and who's in charge. We all know that the Israelites were taken into captivity into Babylon. The Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. Persians are the ones who sent the Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. The Persians were eventually conquered by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great didn't have an heir, and therefore his kingdom was set up or divided up by a bunch of generals. Those generals were somewhat good at hoarding power and then also somewhat bad, and it left a vacuum of leadership for a time, and that's when the Romans eventually stepped in, but not before the Jews fought for their freedom for a little while during the Hasmonean dynasty. But that got shot down when there was a bunch of infighting amongst the Jews over power. And that's when the Romans came in and said, well, if you're not going to take power for yourselves, then we'll take it from you. And so the Romans are in charge and the Romans set up a regional kind of political magistrates to watch over the people and so they weren't foreign people. They weren't setting up a Roman person. They were kind of employing a Jewish head of state in a way to watch over their own people, but they were in league with Rome. And so Herod the Great was just such a person. I, I feel like we need to give you a little like round of applause. That was a great like two minute history of of. <laughs> That was one of my favorite years. days of class to teach <laughs> when I taught Old Testament because none of my students ever knew that intertestamental period. Like no one ever taught them that growing up in like Sunday school. And so when mm -hmm. you're teaching freshmen or sophomores Old Testament, you're like, how do we get to Jesus? Like, what's the political climate? And they have no idea because they've never been taught anything that happens between exile and like Jesus being born. So mm -hmm. super yeah, fun. I mean, it's interesting to think about, um, cause like Herod is neat. Like there's a way that Herod gets to maintain his Jewishness. And I don't think that the, like the community of Jewish people would have like laid claim to Herod as like, that is an uh, like upstanding Jewish <laughs> person. Well, it was super complicated because being Jewish was no longer simply about ethnicity because you had a lot of people who had been intermarried, whether it was with the Assyrians or other people groups that had come down over the centuries. And then you also had this real push under Alexander the Great and the people that came after him to Hellenize or to make Greek everything in the region. And so you had some Jewish people that thought, hey, our best way to survive is if we become more and more Greek, which even means adopting the language and the customs. And others were like, no, what it means to be Jewish is to not do any of that. And so the Hasmoneans, um, the Maccabeans, they were actually very against being, you know, Hellenized or, you know, Greek, Greekized, right? And so they were kind of off on their own. And then the Greeks went and said, hey, you need to actually get in line with this. And that's when they fought back and they kicked them out of Jerusalem. And they kind of took back the temple. They reclaimed it. This is where Hanukkah comes in. And it's this beautiful reclaiming of the temple for the Jewish people, but also for like the cultural custom of what it meant to be Jewish. And so you're pushing back not only against Greek, but you're also pushing back against all the Jewish people that were adopting this more Greek way of living. 
both language and customs. And, and so that is a real tension in the first century is how worldly, how Greek, how Roman are we going to be in order to survive or how Jewish are we going to maintain? And so, yeah, someone like Herod, who may have been Jewish ancestrally, was definitely not culturally or and definitely not politically. So, yeah, it's a real controversy at the time. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in, in all of those years. I just want to put a couple dates on that that are there too, which is in that sort of wrestle with how Hellenized to become. That's where the Septuagint comes into play. So a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures comes into play around 255 BC, which means that like in the New Testament, when the when the Hebrew scriptures are being quoted, they're often being quoted in Greek um, because people in Jesus's day would have been reading the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures because we're already in translation territory with that Hellenized sort of piece. And a part of that wrestle of like, what does it mean to be what does it mean to be a Hebrew person living under Roman rule in the land that was promised to us? That question that exists during the time of Jesus existed for hundreds of years before Jesus was born. What does it mean to be a Hebrew Jewish person living in the land promised to be ours, but it's yet, it's not ours. We're under oppression. We're under foreign rule. And that question then starts to come to a head differently during Jesus, during the New Testament and during that now this visit of the Magi saying, hey, here comes here comes a new king. But back to, like Lisa said, like, would the would people have claimed Herod as, like, a good Jewish boy? <laughs> um, he actually, like, one of the things that he does after he's named king is that he sacrifices to Jupiter. So he very visibly is trying to play all sides of this political religious game. <laughs> he, is, he is sacrificing to Jupiter saying, look, I'm with Rome while also looking at the people of Jerusalem and beyond saying, look, I'm Jewish. And he, and everybody kind of knows him to be that way. And everybody's sort of questioning in that, how much can they use his rule for their own gain? Um, which is a part of what happens then when he's building the temple or when his son is building, the, when he and then his son are working on the temple, right? In the time of Jesus is like, he is they're making a temple that is going to be one of the great wonders of the Roman world as a priest who wants a good temple. Do I get Do I follow along with that political game or do I push against that political game? Like Herod smacks us right in all of these tensions of religion and power and politics. I do think his name is interesting. Like it, like, cause I was, what I was struck by was in reading in the uh, indigenous translation that like chief looks brave. I was like, oh, are they, like, are they saying something? <laughs> but like, it actually works, which I was like, oh, that's interesting. Cause like, there is like, Herod contains the word of heroes, but it also can, like, it also comes from um, Eidos. It's like the combination of the two and Eidos is actually external or outward. Um. Which then I was like, oh, that's interesting to be like a hero on the outside. Um, feels fitting, a fitting descriptor for um, people who are in the midst of those political games of like, you might look like a hero, but what is the inside? What's it for? Like, why are you doing what you're doing? 
Or like, what have you compromised about who you are to make those gains, to be that mm-hmm. hero to, in a, to a certain extent? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And I mean, at some level in that, in that I can find empathy. Like, not that I'm going to make suddenly make Herod the hero of the story <laughs> or anything like that, but like, I can, I can have empathy for someone who is trying to be a hero and yet internally feels like they're sacrificing everything they've held true, but they're maybe trying to be brave or they're trying to do the right thing. I, I think we, we do that a lot on smaller scales. And um, I think when you, when you're in positions of power, it's, it's uh, yeah, that's a hard question sometimes. And he, we're also then when we're in the time of Herod, we are then past the time of the, the Hasmonean dynasty at that time period, the leaders were the priests, the the Maccabees, the Hasmonean dynasty, they were high priests, they were of that priestly class. Herod diverges from that. So he is not a priest, he is a king. Um, and so he then is appointing priests. But that starts that that's playing the game then differently as well. Like he actually married the daughter of the that was a part of the Hasmonean line so that he could kind of marry into the priestly line. And try to have some authority to be like appointing priests that would end up being subject to him. It's a it's a total game there, but that also then creates some context around the fact that here he is a leader in Jerusalem, and he does not know the scriptures of where the Messiah is supposed to be born. He doesn't know, like he's calling together other people who know it. And there's a way that's kind of poking at Herod from from Matthew's writing of like, see, here's a king who's claiming himself to be the leader of our people, but he does not know what the scriptures say. Yeah. Nor do some of the closest people he has gathered around them. Like he's got to kind of go searching for this information and hear these people from the East who aren't our people seem to know it. Like what's, what's going on in this religious political climate that these outsiders know something that the insiders don't. Oh, that, that, that's a, that's a wrestle that is easy to like shove off on like, well, them, they made that mistake. But for many of us, we're the insiders and we think we know something. Mm -hmm. And I think the wrestle for us is like, maybe I should listen to those on the outside who may be warning me about what I'm caught up in or what I'm blinded by. What outsider is a truth teller, is a prophet, is a, is a wise one. Well, and it's tricky to know who's on the outside. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause right. Like, right. Cause like in some ways it's this yeah. really, I think we understand it as where we are in, in time with politics in America. Like it's a super complicated way of like, well, who's actually, who, who's in power? <laughs> who's driving the thing? And um, like, who, who do we listen to? And how do we listen to them? <clears throat> and then we pull up into some other conversations about how our religion and our faith practices pull into that conversation and suddenly we kind of are in spaces of like oh how wait who who is trustworthy right now who like it might be better to ask somebody who's completely on the outside what the hell's happening here because we're all in it 
Mm-hmm. And we have lots at stake. I think that question of what do we have at stake is a part of it. Like I, um, I've always, I've been struck by the fact that here these magi come from far away. Let's keep unpacking where they come from and who they are. And, and Jerusalem is only like five miles from Bethlehem and nobody goes with them. Like back to the, what do we have at stake? Like, they're like, oh, it's Bethlehem. And so the Magi go on their way. Like, why, where are the people with the Magi being like, well, I want to go see what you're like, what are you, what are you, where is, you saw a star? Like, tell me more about that journey. Like nobody goes with them. Why does nobody go with them? What do they have at stake that they're afraid to lose? If something comes like, what are, what are their minds and eyes closed to? And what are my mind? What is my mind and my eyes closed to where I just wouldn't see it? Like if somebody came and said, ask that question. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's it's almost like I get the feeling that here they come, they are asking about this. And it's almost like Herod and those in charge are like, okay, what are they talking about? How do we get more information on this? And then they get the information, they tell them, and Instead of being like, I mean, they say they're afraid, but they don't do anything about it. So it's like, okay, how afraid are they? And then do they think, okay, we can't take these guys seriously. They're not even like a part of the system. So like, we're just going to ignore them. But then it's like, it works over time. Like that fear just kind of keeps seeping in and creeping in and creeping in. And then it becomes like a full-fledged like fear, fear. And they don't show up. They don't come back. And so now that fear gets even escalated even more. And that's when you finally take action and, and do something about it. Um, because you, you, but when you could have, you could have probably figured this out right away, mm-hmm. like you're saying. And, and I, I think here it is, it's a great example of them ignoring the intuition of the outsider. Mm-hmm. And like, it's not just intuition either. It's, it's like, so the, the Magi came from the East. They probably came from Persia. Um, Amy Jill Levine, who's a great New Testament scholar, I kind of try to read what she puts out there in the world, names that they're likely Zoroastrian priests, um, which are which still exist today, actually, as a as a religion and as a as a culture, um, where like they studied, they had this astronomic astronomy knowledge. And they probably combined it with some philosophy and foreign wisdom. Like they they knew enough to follow something to get them to Jerusalem, but they also then kept searching when their knowledge ran out. Like they they journeyed. It's not just like, oh, I wonder what that is. It was like, I am so curious about that star that I'm going to research and figure things out. And I'm so curious that I'm going to get on my camel and travel across other nation states for days, for months to get there. And then when I get there, I'm so curious that I'm going to knock on the door of a king to ask a question that I don't know the answer to. Like the level of searching that these magi did is really incredible. Um, and it probably, I mean, when you go further into Matthew 2, um, our, our nativity scenes sadly are wrong when they have the magi in them because it talks about them going to a house to see a child. And the reason that matters to me is it shows how long they were on this journey of looking. 
that even the fact that Herod has all the children under age two killed shows that Jesus was up to two years old, which means these magi have been on a journey of years to find the answer to this star. Like that's, that's not just like an interesting question from an outsider. That is somebody who is, who is searching much more deeply than those who are close to the story. Like, why is that? What's going on that they are willing to put two years of their life into this search? It makes me wonder about like if they're from Persia. So if like we, if we center them in Persia or that history, if we think about like during Persian rule, there's like, that's actually when the priestly class is ruling, like we kind of talked about that probably influences some of the ways that you exist in the world versus when a King is ruling. Like if there's like, if you're being, you're, space that you operate in like they're probably familiar with things that would make this a very they might be open to this being true versus trying to figure out like what they're like not promoting necessarily uh it doesn't feel like they're promoting a religion they're looking for answers to something that i don't know do you know what i'm saying i don't know yeah well you can see it in um so Magi show up in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar and, and Daniel 2.10, it's the same in the Septuagint, it talks about it being Magi, that, that King Nebuchadnezzar, so at that point, Babylonian rule, gathers Magi to help him interpret a dream. And in the book of Daniel, these, these individuals are being raised up to be wise men, to be consultants, to be people that help the king. Um, and so that's what's going on in Persia. And you see that then King Cyrus, like trust, trust Daniel. There's a trust of these wise humans in Babylon, in Persia. When you get to King Herod under Roman rule, King Herod is threatened by people who are wise. King Herod puts underneath him people who are weaker than him and dumber than him, quote unquote, so that he can rule with a stronger fist and ha- keep his power. And so you do see some difference perhaps in the coming in like that this, these magi exist because they're from a place where that wisdom is recognized as good and important, where that search for truth is seen as good and important. And under Herod, that's being lost because power is what's become important. Power is becoming more important than truth or knowledge or faith or searching. Man, the current parallels are just almost too easy. Um, When you talk about power, wanting to remain in power by stifling creativity or openness to ideas or openness to uh, wisdom, openness to learning and growth and transformation, um, that 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 feels like a lot of our culture right now that there are people who don't want learning to be available or to be critical or to be thoughtful and instead want to control the narrative in order to control the power and that's scary um it's scary when we're limiting when we're limiting learning um and creativity and thoughtfulness but it's hard to, up, yeah. 
but I think in some ways we recognize it because it's kind of that what happens when we are learning things that take away our power. There's an immediate, like as soon as something is threatening our power is when like learning feels like, nope, shut it off. <laughs> stop, stop, learn, start, stop teaching me that kind of business. Um, like it's, you know, it's like the, all the banned books, like what are they banned for? Like uh, why? But like, they tend to be teaching us something outside of what we're comfortable with, like that push of that extension of things. And so I'm just, yeah, we probably need to pay attention to like when we're, when we feel that, when we feel that tension of I'm learning something, but it's pulling at my power. Mm-hmm. Well, and it goes to that fear, right? Like Herod's afraid. Well, why is he afraid? Is he, is he really afraid of a Messiah? Like, is he, what well, is, or is he afraid of losing his power? Cause if mm-hmm. he's afraid of a Messiah, that that's what they should have been looking for the whole time. They should have been expecting one, right? That's, that's, that's the whole point is that their scriptures have been leading towards a, a return to the good, a return to a healthy relational dynamic with, with God and with others. And, and that's going to require something almost miraculous. Right. And yet that idea, when it actually surfaces is scary to them. Um, It's, it's like, it's like we're scared to live into the constitution where all people are created equal. And it's like, well, kinda, you know, mm-hmm. or or only if it doesn't threaten my position and ability to thrive, then sure, we'll go along with it to an extent. But as soon as that starts to hinder, then we we, you know, we got to get back to our values. You know, we got to get back to the way it was. And and yeah, da- that's where it gets real dangerous. I'm I'm thinking about the fear piece that it's not just Herod who's afraid, it's all of Jerusalem who's af- who's afraid. And and why is mm-hmm. that? Why are there different people who are afraid? Because they're probably afraid for different reasons. So there's probably a whole group of people who are afraid because of the power they might lose. Mm-hmm. There might be another group of people who's afraid because who are these outsiders coming in? knowing like I might be afraid of these outsiders coming in there might be another group of people who's afraid because they still carry with them the traumas of the Maccabean revolt failing um they know what it was to put their hope in a leader that we're going to be free from Greco-Roman rule and it didn't work and so maybe I'm afraid of somebody trying again and us having more losses only for it to not work again like I'm thinking about all the reasons we actually might end up being afraid if someone came to us and said, here's a glimmer of hope. Mm. Somebody's been born to lead you. I mean, and and that that's, that's a, a current thing too. That's a current political question too. I mean, I was just listening to a podcast about, um, you know, people getting interviewed on different sides of the political spectrum and, 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 you know, it's roundly assumed by most people or by, by many prognosticators that when you talk about voting blocks of people that the black vote is going to be predominantly Democrat. But when you interview people, they often, I don't say they as like every single black person, that's not the case at all, but 
some people when they're interviewed talk about the lack of kept promises by the Democratic Party or the Dem and and how they feel let down over and over and over again. And so um, to make assumptions about who's voting for who and how that all goes, um, it, sometimes there's false hope and it makes people weary of continuing to, you know, place their their trust in certain entities. And so um, I, I think you're really onto something, Steph, when you talk about, you know, maybe people really do want a Messiah. Maybe they really do want liberation from the 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 Romanization of the world. Maybe they really do want freedom from the the political rule of Herod and, and the people he's got in his back pocket religiously. And yet they are scared that this will just be one more instance of somebody promising something and not coming through. And how how scary would that be to be let down again, as opposed to, hey, I figured out how to live with this with this with this mess, you know, just don't make it worse for me, you know, mm -hmm. or at least don't promise something you can't fulfill. Like that only, that only sinks me deeper. And they're going to face consequences for failure too. It's probably in a time period where, you know, the, the history of Greco-Roman rule says that revolts are squelched, not just for the person who did the revolt, but other people are taxed or punished alongside just for being a part of that same group. And so there is probably a lot to be afraid of if you're living in Jerusalem and these outsiders come in and you're like, okay, what kind of disruption is this going to be? Is this really going to be for our good? Can we trust God? Is God even speaking right now? What are we looking for? Well, it's I mean, hard to we center ourselves, right? Like there's this weird thing. Like sometimes I just get overwhelmed by thinking about like the amount of time the Bible encompasses. <laughs> there's a lot of time. <laughs> so while, while it kind of like pieces, it feels like pace wise, a lot of stuff moves and a lot of things happen. There's like, like if you're in the, if you're in the years where it doesn't feel like God's speaking, that's like to know that, how do you know that you're in that year? How do you know that you're like, you don't really know what's going to happen. We can't know future. We don't know the future. Just have like a whatever. Like, I don't know. It's that thing of like, when people say like, I wish Jesus would come back today, like ready for him to come back. And then I'm kind of like, I don't know. Are you, are we? <laughs> like, is that for my lifetime? Is that for your life? Do we even understand it correctly? Do we know what's happening? And so to even wonder about like, there's probably fears around it, but there's also probably like, how long has it been since this has felt like a real option? Mm -hmm. And does it actually feel like this is the real option? This is it right now? Right, especially because we, here's the thing. Anybody listening who would use the term Christian to define yourself, I, I want all of us to really think about, even as Christians, do Old Testament prophecies feel clear to us? We can cast it, we can we can make it feel like everybody was sitting around with this really clear knowledge of scripture and really clear data point saying, here is act, here is here is who a Messiah is going to be. Here's what they'll do when they come. Here's what kind of hope and freedom you can look for. That is not a clear thing. It really isn't. Even if you believe Jesus to have been that Messiah and you look backwards with that lens, it is not a clear path. And so 
there also then is that thing. And most people aren't literate and most people don't even have those unclear scriptures at their fingertips to search through. They're in, they're in the synagogue. They hear them read, you know, once in a while. It, it, it takes a lot of faith to see it. It takes a lot of, of hope to hope for it. It's not like, it's not like people were ignoring clear facts sitting in front of them. It was a very tumultuous time period. It was been a long time since a prophet came and, and even those prophets, the things that are about this anointed one in them are like right in the middle of them talking about other things. Like it's very confusing. It is very unclear and people are tired and have given up hope. Even let's look at that. So we read one of the prophecies. So um, verse six of Matthew two, um, they're like reading this um, quote from Micah five. Um, so maybe we read, maybe we read it from Micah five two, or maybe actually, maybe, maybe Lisa read it from your indigenous translation again. Oh, very good. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> but you, O house of bread, Bethlehem, in the land of promise, Judea, even though you are small, you have a good reputation with the chiefs who watch over the land. From you will come a great chief who will guide my chosen people, the tribes of wrestles with creator, Israel. So in context, <clears throat> That's from Micah 5, verse 2. Micah 4 is talking about how one day there will be peace. Micah 5 begins, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Then verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little in the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth unto me, who is ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been told from old, from everlasting. That's what they have to go on, that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Would that actually feel like something that we are, would we be reading Micah 5, 2 <laughs> and like watching Bethlehem with bated breath? If Absolutely we were not. living in that time period. Absolutely not. I mean, no, <laughs> no, 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 which I think gets to this, <clears throat> well, I, and I think it gets to this idea that I've been, I've been kind of mulling over. We have, because of so much human history since the time of Jesus and through the enlightenment and the printing press and the Protestant reformation and Bibles and the Gideons putting a Bible in every hotel room and all of this Christianity now is so obvious to everyone, whether you agree with it or not, whether you claim it or not, it doesn't matter. It's so obvious. It's so there on the surface. And, and what it is, it's, it's not a, a, a movement of what it means to be human. It's not a different way to be human. It's a religion. It's a, I ascribe to this, that makes me a part of this club. And to be a part of this club has these specific expectations or rules or ideas about the future and what's going to happen, you know, at the end times or whatever, however we 
describe it. We've created our list of what that thing is. And that's what we are claiming to be as Christian, as opposed to a way of being in the world. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, if the goal was just to make sure everybody knew that he was the Messiah and that it was so they have the right religion, what happens in the Gospels is asinine because it makes no sense if that's the goal. If it's simply to just create a new religion where Jesus is the one, because instead of doing everything that he did in the way that he did, it should have just been like beams of light and trumpets galore all the time. And it would have been like flashing red lights constantly of Messiah, 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 Messiah. Like this is it. This is it. And we would have all gotten it and we would have all done the thing and then, you know, and we would have all been Christian, but that's not the goal of scripture. The goal of scripture is not that we just make sure we worship the right God or that we all go to heaven one day. The goal of scripture is the transformation of what it means to be human and how we treat one another, how we treat the planet, how we understand our relationship to the divine, how we understand our relationship within ourselves. So Jesus doesn't come along and say, hey, all you have to do is agree to this, this, and this, and then don't worry, it'll all work out in the end. Instead, it's like, I'm going to really painstakingly, relationship by relationship, sermon by sermon, try to help you understand that there's a whole different way to be you. And it's actually at the core of how you were created. It's the core of who you are. You are love. And out of that, you have the opportunity to live as love. And like, that's not religious. That's transformational. Like, that's not a, a list of beliefs. It's, it's a way of being. And, and I, I think we, we miss it because the, what we've been handed is, is the Christian religion. We've not been handed Christological transformation. Which also then helps us see why people in that time period miss it, because there is no context for how a Messiah would not free them from Roman rule. Like they're not, that that is not in their context. That is what a Messiah would do. Just like we would then think of Christianity as meaning a certain thing that like when God comes in and is disrupting what we think of as, as religion, no matter the time period, that's hard to see. That's hard to search after. That's hard to accept because it is so disruptive. Um, and well, even the way like, that Jesus frames, like, here's why you should listen to me. It's not, I came from God. Listen to me. It's notice what I'm doing, right? Notice what I'm up to. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the dead are rising, and the good news is preached to the poor. It's it's human transformation is what he's saying. Like, pay attention to the human transformation that's happening around me, because that's how you can tell that I'm actually who I say I am. Like, and the evidence speaks for itself. And what's happening then when we're looking at the birth narratives is, as we can ask, how then are the gospel writers telling the story of the birth narratives in a similar way? And what mm -hmm. kind of picture mm -hmm. is being painted? So this, so Matthew from the beginning is, is now having outsiders be central to the story. This is not a story about people in power keeping their power. This is a story about people in power getting nervous as outsiders know something as people who we thought didn't belong actually coming into the center of things. Like there's a way that the story is being told, even from the birth of this, isn't going to be exactly what you expected. This is going to challenge you. This is going to disrupt you. Like, are you open to seeing 
mm-hmm. or are you afraid? Hmm. Wow. Wow. Are you open to seeing or are you afraid? <laughs> oh, it's like, are you open to the imagination that something more is actually possible and you can participate in it? Or are you going to be scared of that and then do whatever is within your power to protect your power? It, it, it brings to me the question that Lisa, I think, asks us a lot. I'll channel my Lisa <laughs> of who are we in the story? And are we seeing ourselves well? Because probably we want to see ourselves as the Magi, but probably we're more likely a Herod or maybe one of the people in Jerusalem who's afraid. Um, maybe we're someone who's not even aware that this conversation's going on. <laughs> and what does it mean to open up to see? This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching Safety.